Georgia's DBHDD is warning all Georgians that half of all opioid deaths happen at home when people take an oxy or a perk with a glass of alcohol for stress or to sleep. Learn more about protecting families from opioid overdoses at opioidresponse.info. Thank all of you out there for being with us for another Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. It's good to be back on the air for this special edition on this Thursday. Of course, we were off yesterday so that uh, GPB Radio could bring you uh, the impeachment hearing, the first of the public hearings on impeachment, which we'll talk about with our panel a little bit later in the show. So let's get right to the news of the day. Tamar Hallerman. Uh, joins us from Washington. She, of course, is the AJC Washington correspondent. But Tamar, this is you're down to your final days in D.C. before coming back, being reassigned to Atlanta, right? I know it's wild. I've been here for 12 years, so very bittersweet. I'll bet it is. But at least you've picked a quiet time to leave Washington. <laughs> Nothing <laughs> happens here. <laughs> Your replacement, Tia Mitchell of the AJC, uh, is getting up to speed up there. And we'll be talking to her and really are looking forward to the fact when we have you on, you'll be right in the studio with us. That's really good for all of us. Exactly. Won't be a disembodied voice anymore. That's right. Uh, here in the studio with uh, me today, Buddy Darden, former Democratic congressman from the 7th District. He represented Cobb County, basically the Chattahoochee River, all the way up to the Tennessee line. How are you, buddy? I'm great, and I love this new studio, yeah. Bill. This yeah. is outstanding, and it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. If you're watching on Facebook Live, uh, you've seen the studio before. It, if you haven't seen it, then go to the GPB news page on Facebook, and you can uh, see what we're all dealing with right here. Edward Lindsay is back with us, former Republican yep. member of the Georgia House, represented Atlanta for like a decade, right? That's right. That's right. How are you, Mr. Lindsay? I'm doing well, and I will echo what Buddy said. This is a really nice new set of digs y'all yeah. have here. <laughs> well, we're very happy about it. Let's get right to work on uh, the news of the day, and let's Let's put off talking about impeachment for at least a little while. Uh, and let's start with, uh, Tamar, the new AJC poll. We were so glad that your boss, uh, Kevin Riley, finally ordered up a poll so we could start getting some ideas about how Georgians are feeling about a variety of issues. Uh, you're, you worked with the University of Georgia, School of Public and International Affairs. There's like uh, more than 1,000 registered voters, 3% margin of error, error. So that's the setup for all of this. And, and tomorrow, if, you, if we can, let's take it sort of in order of state uh, officials, state elected officials, and then go to the, to the uh, uh, stuff about uh, the president's approval rating and impeachment. So if I can, just for the heck of it, let's start with Brian Kemp. It's, your poll shows that he has a 54% approval rating, which is up like 40, from 46 in April and 37 in January. I mean, it's really interesting how he shot up in favorability here in Georgia tomorrow. Yeah, really been marching upward ever since he was elected. Um, and, and it's quite a different story compared to what we've seen with, with um, David Perdue and Donald Trump, who've been more steady. Uh, but But Definitely good signs for Brian Kemp as we've been going through the year. Well, you know, Edward, what's interesting about this, in a way, is when he supported and then signed HB 486, the bill that virtually outlaws abortion in Georgia, there were a great many people who thought that it would really hurt him in terms of his approval among voters across the state. And yet, I don't know that anybody was thinking specifically about that issue, but it certainly hasn't hurt him. Well, the fact of the matter is when you're governor, you're dealing with a broad range of issues. And while, um, you know, a voter uh, may disagree with you on this issue or that issue, when it comes to those what I like to call sort of uh, breakfast room table issues, uh, he's been very strong on. And he's also enjoying a time in which, uh, as shown by the poll in the AJC, uh, voters have a very positive view of Georgia in general. I think, what was it, 60 percent tomorrow? and also have a very favorable uh, view of the Georgia economy. And so when you have those things going for you and you're the governor and you're basically a low-keyed kind of a guy, and Brian Kemp is a, is a technocrat low-keyed kind of a guy, uh, you know, you're going to uh, enjoy some favorable ratings. All right. So, buddy, 
that's Edward says an interesting thing. A governor is going to be judged on a variety of issues. Fair enough. But we know that Governor Kemp is if we look at a lot of the other uh, findings in this poll, there are many issues on which Georgians seem to have a somewhat progressive views. And Governor Kemp is far from a progressive governor and yet continues to grow in favorability. Well, people expect the Georgia governor to mind the store and to keep the state running, to keep the state out of debt, to uh, protect us uh, on our roads and highways and to keep our infrastructure going. The governor of Georgia has an immense responsibility on a lot of things, as he as he pointed out. However, uh, he's going to run into some problems pretty soon uh, if he doesn't find a way to get around some of these more divisive issues. Like what? Uh, like the abortion issue, for mm. example. Uh, and I'm afraid, notwithstanding the fact that he's trying, doing the best he can, I don't think his health care plan is going to fly because we've already foregone in this state more than $15 billion since ACA uh, was was uh, enacted. And uh, so I think he's he's in a learning mode. And I think he's making a really good effort. But at the same time, uh, he is at least smart enough not to get out there and say outrageous things and pretend that he knows things he doesn't know. And so I, I would give him a pretty good mark at, at this point for making a, a good effort and trying to bring people together in the state. He's done a pretty good job, job of that as well with some of his appointments. Well, one thing to keep in mind, let's just sort of talk about the health care issue, for instance, is that the poll uh, by the AJC shows the danger of Democrats going too far. Uh, on the health care issue uh, by a pretty wide margin. For instance, they, uh, Georgians do not support uh, Medicare for all that's being supported by a lot of the national Democrats and all. And so he's taken what I would call sort of a down the middle of the road uh, position on, on the health care issue when it comes to expanding Medicaid, tying it to uh, certain work uh, requirements. And I think overall that's going to be something that most Georgians are will approve. So, so tomorrow let's uh, go to that uh, uh, piece of the poll. Um, in, in being asked about Medicare for all, only 40 percent of the respondents support the idea. 53 percent oppose it. Interestingly enough, independent voters are basically split on the issue but here's the thing with the Democrats heading for, to town for their presidential debate next week. Nearly one third of Democrats say it's a bad idea. Uh, that what Edward says about that is interesting, isn't it? And Bill, I'm one of them. I'm one of that one of that uh, one third that thinks it's a terrible idea. Tomorrow. Now, one of the things about Medicare for all is that there's no real definition. There's not a single definition for it. And the poll does not go into that. It does not say, here's what, here's what Medicare for all means. And you talk to different candidates and they say different things. And I think that gray area is really what a lot of these candidates are going to be having, you know, the kind of the ground they're going to be ha- playing on next week. If you're Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders, you're going to explain why, you know, it's so important. You know, we're not talking about a total takeover of our health care plan, or maybe you are. Um, and, and that's also up for, for candidates who want to just expand Obamacare to also explain that as well. One, one interesting thing, um, you know, in previous polls, we, we did, the AJC and, and UGA did poll Georgians based on their support of expanding Medicaid, mm-hmm. um, which is something Brian Kemp has not wanted to do. And, and you know, voters have, sh- have shown, I believe it was 70 percent in our last poll. 70 percent, you're exactly so right. They supported it. Overwhelmingly. Um, Exactly. And so a lot of it, you have to pay attention to the language that these pollsters are using. What exactly are they they asking these, these poll people, these, uh, these respondents? And they really did not provide any details. So that's something to keep in mind. Right, let, yeah, let, but remember this when it comes to the Medicaid for all. It's been topic A uh, in each and every one of the Democratic debates. And quite frankly, it's been tarred and feathered uh, by a lot of the Democratic candidates against those uh, in the field who are supporting it. So it's not as if the issue hasn't been uh, discussed widely uh, during this political well, season. Well, that's right. And I think it's going to be interesting. I would, I would guess that 
given that this is, what, the fifth debate coming up next week, given that there's four women who are moderating this debate, I'd be surprised if health care was this, once again, was the top question they posed. If for no other reason, Tamar, then I would think that MSNBC and The Washington Post would like to, you know, throw some things up in the air and get another lead for their stories. Yeah. Exactly. And one thing I'm curious to see if they talk about is, is maternal mortality. Yeah. Um, George has been been pretty low in his, in his ranking or I guess pretty high. Um, you know, a lot of maternal mortality here, especially among communities of color. I'll be interested to see if, if folks talk about that. All right. Let, let me uh, go with another figure here that I found fascinating. Uh, so, Tamar, 50 percent of the people in this survey approve of David Perdue's job performance. Fine. He's always in the past. He's always pulled better than either President Trump or uh, Governor Kemp on the on, on approval ratings. Now he's still at 50 percent. But what's odd about it is 35 percent, only 35 percent say that they'll support him in next year's election. Forty one percent say their choice depends on who the Democratic nominee is. So what do you see first tomorrow? And then I'll get Edward and Buddy in here. What's the disconnect there? You know, I think a lot of folks are just waiting to see who the Democrats are going to nominate. Right now we have four Democrats who are kind of duking it out for the nomination. And that'll say a lot, right? You've got a, very different flavors of candidates. You have very progressive folks like like Ted Terry, and you have people who are kind of going going more toward the center. Um, I think you talk to David Perdue's post, though, and they see a lot of optimism in that 41% of voters who are who are still kind of to be determined in their vote. They see it as, a, as you know, a, jump ball. You can grab a lot of those voters. And if 50 percent of folks already approve of your job performance, they see it as, as a position of strength. Buddy? In past years, Georgia senators, Democrat and Republican, have had a tradition of being independent and putting the state first and making up their mind based on the issues. And now we have a United States senator who has just just become a toady for the uh, president, and whatever he says is fine. And I think that David Perdue needs to return to be a United States senator from Georgia rather than a Trump acolyte. And if Trump uh, prevails and becomes more popular in the state, that might be good for him. But I don't think I would hitch my wagon to his star okay, quite, but, as, quite well, as heavily. I, I think the, 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 what you need to sort of focus on when it comes to this poll is the fact that he has a 14-point advantage over any Democrat. And you also need to start taking a hard look at the field. The one thing I would disagree with what Tamar said a moment ago is I'm not real sure which of the Democratic candidates right now is trying to tack toward the middle. Uh, right now, all uh, of the wait, ones who are wait, announced you wouldn't say that Pete Buttigieg is— No, no, no. The Senate. Republican, oh, the Senate. The, the I The Democratic apologize. Senate I candidates You're, here in of Georgia. Course, of course. Uh, you know, I, I really haven't seen much evidence of any of those four uh, major candidates running for the U.S. Senate, uh, hoping to run against Purdue, or attacking toward the middle. I think all of them are attacking as far as— to the left as they can at the present moment. Okay, That's so a concern let me, to me, too, as well yeah. as a Democrat. Yeah. All right. A um, couple more figures uh, before we move on to another subject. Uh, and, and let's go ahead and go to uh, the president. Number one, the, uh, the president has a job approval rating if you combine strongly approve with somewhat approve of uh, 44%. He's underwater here in Georgia, just as he is across the country. And uh, uh, if you take somewhat disapprove and strongly disapprove, he's at 54 percent. So, uh, Tamar, the pre- and then let me add this, Tamar, and then and give it to you. And then in fantasy matchups, and, and I think we all need to always caution that these kinds of fantasy matchups, they're an interesting snapshot, but they don't really say anything about what a campaign, head-to-head campaign among any of these people with the president would be down the road. Nevertheless, Joe Biden beats him 51 to 43 in Georgia. Bernie Sanders beats him 48 to 44. Elizabeth Warren, a little more narrow, but not much, 47-44. Buttigieg, 46-43. Uh, Kamala Harris, 45. Basically, these top candidates, top tier candidates, all uh, beat him or are within the margin of error of beating him. That's interesting, Tamar. 
Sure. I mean, we're also more than a year out and, yeah. and so much can change between now and then. One thing I wanted to piggyback off of what Betty was saying and, and kind of how, um, you know, Purdue is this Trump acolyte and how he should maybe distance himself from the president. I mean, one thing that's very notable, you know, Trump has a 44 percent approval rating in this poll, but Purdue is sitting at 50 yeah. percent. So clearly in the eyes of some voters, he, he has distinguished himself from from Donald Trump. And that's that's very notable um, because talking to him on Capitol Hill every day, most of his policy positions are about the same. Um, but another note about Trump, he is underwater, but actually the 44 percent is a slight uptick from what, how he's yes. been polling uh, in our polls over the last uh, yeah. over the last year or so. He, he started at about 38 percent, if I remember correctly, back in January. So he has been been inching his way up and a lot can happen between now and November. And especially I think the economy will, you know, could have the very you know, the, the most impact on this at the end of the day. One thing that I would caution folks uh, about is what I would call the, the, the Trump factor, though, in which uh, he generally underpolls his actual performance because there's a certain percentage of the population that do support him, but they don't trust pollsters or anyone, they don't necessarily want to tell anyone. I, I, think, be- I think you touched on it yeah. right there. They're ashamed of their vote. They, they but, for him, but they're ashamed of it. They won't or, tell anybody. Or, <laughs> I or I don't know if they're ashamed of it or they just don't trust the pollsters or anyone else. And, and tomorrow, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think y'all actually did a poll after the 2016 election uh, in terms of who you voted for. And the polls show like 5% less people admitted to who they voted for than who actually voted for them, as opposed to I think y'all were dead on in, uh, in terms of Hillary Clinton. So you you, you got to factor in that. And, and, you know, and also, once again, and, and Tamara sort of gave that cautionary tale that we are a year out. And when it comes down to a binary choice in November 2020, yeah. you know, folks are going to vote on, on what do they believe is that's to be right. their best interest. Yeah, that, that's why I, I did a disclaimer at the start of that. These are fantasy matchups. They have nothing to do with the reality of what the campaigns will shape up to be after the primaries are over with uh, next year. Um, one other point about Purdue, Edward. Uh it was interesting that he issued a statement the other day or said it on one of the channels he appears on. He's, we've got to get past this gridlock in Washington. Uh, what a wonderful aspirational thing to say. How do you think the president is contributing to the effort to get past gridlock? <laughs> I, I think that there are so many guilty parties in well, Washington fair enough. on both sides of the political <laughs> aisle that I don't think you can necessarily point to anyone. The fact of the matter is, and, and this is the danger of Democrats uh, as they go through this impeachment process, is that there are a large number of, of people out there who are going, wait a minute, we elected you XYZ Democratic congressman or senator to deal with uh, issues that affect us at home, not this issue. And the longer this thing drags out, I think uh, it could very well turn on Democrats. All right. Finally, one last uh, item from the poll that's worth pointing out, because later in the show we'll talk about yesterday's impeachment hearing. Fifty four percent of voters approve of the impeachment inquiry, while 44 percent disapprove. Uh, on the other hand, when it comes to removing the president from office, it's an even split, 47 percent to 47 percent, yes and no. But Tamar, again, uh, this is an interesting figure, at least. When you get into the crosstabs on this poll, 51 percent of independents, the people that both parties are going to be looking to win over uh, next year, 51 percent of independents say they're against removing Trump. Should we read anything into that tomorrow? I mean, I, I guess they're the ones to, to be watching in all of this. And, and as we go through these hearings, you see both parties really searching for that breakthrough moment in all of the in all of the testimony. And so, you know, hoping to capture the, the mind of all those undecided independents. I right. think tomorrow's got the right right point here. This thing's got to play out, Bill. Yeah, right. We've only had two witnesses, and and uh, so far, and everybody has already already trying to call call the game. And uh, we need to see what what it's like. I've tried a lot of lawsuits, just like Edward has, yeah. and uh, I don't think uh, your 
your verdict is going to be de- determined on your on your first witness. It, if your first witness helps, then you build on that and so forth. So I think yeah. this there's a big rush to judgment on everybody's side. I know the media up there wants an immediate answer. They want they are looking for this point and that point, but we just got to show some patience and see where this thing goes and see what the testimony produces. Right. Well, you're right. I mean, the fact of the matter is, we live in a 24-hour news cycle, and they got to fill 24 hours worth of time, and so they've got to have the instant pundit as to whether or not this, what will be the ultimate verdict. Was that, uh, 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 is this fake news we're talking about now, Edward? No, no, not this station. Uh, not this show. <laughs> uh, you know, we are offering to make sage sure. advice uh, on this one. But, but you know, like I said a moment ago, uh, you know, not only the Democrats, but Republicans, uh, this is a this is a landmine that they're both navigating its way through. Yeah. If the Democrats show themselves to be overly partisan, uh, they are in danger of alienating the public. If the Republicans uh, appear to be um, overly, I think your term was toady. Uh, a moment ago, uh, they appeared to be uh, uh, less than what All right. the voters were. I got to get to a break, and I, but I also, as I do that, want to point out that Sam, uh, Tom, and I uh, uh, were talking before the show about how we were going to ma- put our show, what what order we wanted to take items in, and both Sam and Tom cautioned me that the minute I mentioned the word impeachment, we could end up going down the rabbit hole yes. that we always go down. Thank you, Mr. Lindsay, for proving that they were. <laughs> right. I'm guilty also. I'm guilty also. <laughs> we will talk about impeachment, uh, but we got a couple items we're going to get to before that. But right now, let's get our first break out of the way, and we'll be back in a minute. Not happy with the dealer trade-in quote for your old car? You could always donate it to this station. It's worth a lot to us, and pickup is free. Give us a call to learn more. Call 877-GPB-1-CAR or go to gpb.org cars. That's 877-GPB-1-CAR or gpb.org slash cars. And thanks. Support for GPB comes from our monthly sustainers. And the Atlanta Journal-Constitution is part of a statewide investigation into assisted living facilities. The AJC makes the crime and inspection reports they uncovered available in a searchable database accessed at AJC.com unprotected. And Augusta University, in coordination with the Harry Jacobs Chamber Music Society, presenting the Warp Trio, a cross-genre chamber music experience, on November 15th at 7.30 p.m. Tickets available at AugustaUniversityTickets.com. Tamar Hallerman is joining us uh, from Washington. Buddy Darden and Edward Lindsay are here in the GPB radio studio in Midtown Atlanta. Um, Buddy, there was an interesting report that this was released by Debbie Stabenow, the representative from Michigan, from the Midwest, a farm belt uh, senator, a member of the House. Um, Stabenow? No, oh, she's a member Senate. of the Senate. Senator, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Of course she is. Um, but she was a member of the House. Yeah, 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 yeah. Thank you. Um, so she got a hold of some figures that we're, uh, we'll see more on this uh, down the road. But USDA and Sonny Perdue, of course, have begun to parcel out money that's been earmarked for uh, the China tariff relief for farmers in this country. And she is disappointed when she saw that Southern farmers and Georgia in particular are getting a disproportionate amount of the money uh, compared to people in the Midwest. So, for instance, Georgia's farmers are getting $52 plus per acre. Uh, farmers in 34 other states are receiving $25 or less, uh, and some of them are only getting $10. And she points out that she thinks that Sonny Perdue, Georgia gets the biggest chunk of all this. So uh, she's seeing political favoritism at work and, you know, good for the farmers of South Georgia if they're getting uh, help because they've got Sonny Perdue on their side up there. But 
You know, I wonder if uh, how Midwestern farmers are going to react to this. Well, first of all, I think she's probably right. I'm, I say more power to Georgia farmers. I'm glad we're getting the money. I, I'm yeah. from Hancock County, which has got to be the poorest county in the state almost. Hancock County is getting $150, $150. per acre. I was so pleased to see that because <laughs> and, and we need door, the money. And next door, Baldwin County is getting 15 What the heck? Well, I don't know what the formula is. <laughs> yeah. uh, I will. Of course, you can't take politics out of politics, and and these are largely political decisions that the secretary is fortunately making in favor of our state, so I'm not going to criticize him for it. No, I but, get but, that. But two points uh, that I think are important in terms of context here. Uh, number one is that while uh, the, the, the amount per acre may be higher in Georgia than it is in some other states, actually the bulk of the money is going to the Midwest. Uh, Iowa, Illinois, Minnesota, Texas, and Kansas, according to the report, are, are receiving a high, much higher amount of money than Georgia is or, or the southern states are. Number as, two— as in, in aggregate. Yeah, in aggregate. But, and then that the doesn't second help point, an individual farmer. Yeah, but the second point uh, that, that uh, Sonny Perdue's administ- uh, agricultural department raised is that this money is based on the impact of the tariffs and not on— uh, geography. And, and that's what this study doesn't show is drilling down whether or not a, a farmer raising peanuts in another state versus a farmer raising peanuts in Georgia or, or receiving a different kinds of different amounts of money. Tamar, that's, that, that's what the study doesn't show. Tamar, do you have a take on this? I mean, one thing I've learned covering agriculture, and I've gotten a real crash course ever since Sonny Perdue was nominated, is so much of the dynamic here is less political and more regional. And there was a lot of mistrust from the Midwesterners when Sonny Perdue's name first surfaced, because the last few secretaries of agriculture were all from the Midwest, including Tom Vilsack. Um, the most recent one, and I believe he was from Iowa or Nebraska. Um, and so there, there was a deal that was cut with Chuck Grassley in the Senate. When, um, when Trump nominated Sonny Perdue, the idea was, okay, Sonny Perdue's deputy will be a Midwesterner. And ultimately, Sonny was confirmed pretty much, you know, because he was qualified, but also because there was a, a senior-ranking Midwestern person. So you're, you're co- constantly seeing that sort of regional dynamic play out on the Hill. And obviously, that's happening here. Edward, the reason I mentioned that you could say that as a state it, at large may have gotten more yeah. money in the Midwest than down here is one of the things that the report asserts is that USDA is, hasn't done much to target um, assistance to the small, medium, and beginning farmers, which reminds us of Sonny Purdue, what some would call a gaffe, going before a group of farmers yeah. and saying the family farm, forget about it, corporate farms are taking over. Well, yeah, and, and but like I said, to get back to my point that I raised a moment ago, is these are interesting numbers. The question is whether or not a small farmer uh, who has a particular crop is being treated the same as a large farmer and for that a large uh, agribusiness and for that matter whether or not a farmer in this state and that in another and versus another state raising the same crop is receiving different amounts. Okay. That's something the study doesn't show us. Okay. This, this has always been this way because yeah. of the regional uh, different set of crops and so yeah. forth and so on. And it's further complicated by the fact that now the president of the American Farm Bureau Federation, as you know, is from Georgia. Green County as well. Yeah. So uh, a lot of pressure, a lot of pressure on on uh, the Department of Agriculture now. And there's always going to be this tension yeah. between the Midwest and, and the well, South. And, and, and the question is what which farmers are being most impacted by these tariffs that have been levied uh, in regards to uh, our trade with China. All right. Well, good good news for the our farmers down in in you know those of you who are listening in rural Georgia. Congratulations. And more good news. Uh, last Friday, uh, Sunny Purdue's office announced that uh, Georgia, Florida, and Alabama are getting eight hundred million dollars plus in dev- in relief, emergency relief after Hurricane. Michael, uh, Georgia is going to receive something like $347 million, almost half of that money. Purdue says, tomorrow the money's going to get to people by Thanksgiving, but a number of other USDA officials said, well, it's going to get to them. It may not be before <laughs> Thanksgiving. But if it's true, thank goodness this uh, relief yeah. is finally well, on the way. Yeah, more than, it, more than a year since the, the hurricane hit, so it's more than time. And, and this specific money 
was very much sought by Governor Kemp and Agriculture uh, Commissioner Gary Black. This particular format that the aid money is coming, you know, they say gives them a lot of flexibility to target folks, especially pecan growers and timber farmers who who fall outside the traditional kind of um, you know, aid packages after hurricanes. So money that's very desperately needed in South well, Georgia. You know, as Buddy likes to trumpet his rural roots, I'll trumpet mine. My, you know, as the grandson of a farmer in Wilcox County with still roots down there, they need the money, and the quicker they get it, the better. Uh, one Absolutely. Other, one other piece of good news for Georgia's uh, ag interests, um, the uh, Chinese, that we apparently now have a deal. I haven't gotten a chance to read the details, but apparently the tariffs on chicken, they've the the administration has reached a deal that is going to allow farmers here to sell chickens again to China. That just came up uh, in the last couple of hours here, and boy, that's really good news for all those people who are chicken producers up there in the Gainesville area. That's right. Uh, you know, Georgia is a huge uh, producer of of uh, in the poultry area, and um, the quicker we can get those disputes with China resolved. And and get our uh, and get our agricultural folks uh, being able to sell the product, the better. All right, um, let's move on. Uh, one more item before we talk about impeachment. <laughs> uh, I just want to make sure, uh, Tamara. I know you haven't thrown your hat in the ring, but Edward, <laughs> Buddy, you both have until five o'clock tomorrow afternoon. Uh, Governor Kemp has set a deadline for that was people. Monday. Uh, is it Monday at five o'clock? You're probably yeah. right. Yeah, yeah, you're probably right. Okay, Monday at five o'clock. Uh, that's it. So he's going to basically have a big pool of candidates by then. Edward, buddy, either of you going to throw your head in the ring for this? I'm not, but I'd like to throw Gary Black into the yeah. into the mix. I think he'd be an excellent senator, and it's going to be interesting to see if. Uh, Chief Justice Harold Melton steps up at the very last minute. Well, Buddy and I were discussing this earlier on, but when we heard that tomorrow was coming back from Washington and we had a chance to continue to be on your show, Bill, we just decided to pass this out. Tomorrow, this is going to be one of the most uh, heralded announcements that we could expect to see in uh, electoral politics uh, uh, in, in the final weeks of 2019. It's going to be really interesting. First of all, it's going to be interesting to hear whether Brian Kemp tries to step on the Democrats at all next week by announcing his choice before the before the Democratic debate. Exactly. And I'm I'm hoping for some bachelor style rose ceremony or, or some sort of coronation. Um, but, but we'll see. And, and, you know, we're also expecting a lot of uh, big names to apply in the next couple of days. A lot of folks were kind of waiting for this final signal from Kent. Maybe people who are, who are currently in nonpartisan roles in corporate America or in the courts or, or maybe they represent, you know, they're an elected official for another office who are kind of waiting. And, and now that they know that Kemp is about to close, I'm expecting to see a lot more big names. And we we saw just today news that Robin Crittenden, the first yeah. African-American woman, uh, tapped for a statewide post uh, after Brian Kemp resigned uh, secretary of state. She, she served for a couple weeks there late last year. Um, you know, she put her name forward. And let's uh, see, very let's well see what Chris woman. Carr, Attorney General Chris Carr, I don't think he has put his name in to no. this point, but uh, he's certainly been talked about a whole lot. And uh, we'll uh, flush him out in the next few days. Mm-hmm. And, uh, of course, Brian Kemp is not bound to that list, is he? If he if he changed his mind, he could he could appoint well, somebody not on the list. Probably, but Edward, if you've gone to all this trouble to have this yeah. big public application and you pick somebody who didn't apply, yeah. it's there's a downside to my, that. My, my <laughs> guess is, if the governor has someone that he 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 likes, uh, he's like who hasn't applied yet, there's going to be a wink and a nod to say, hey, get your name in. Uh, but uh, but tomorrow's right. There's going to be a lot of very interesting people applying the last few days. And, and someone like Robin Crittenden, uh, who has a career in public service, is a, a very strong candidate. All right, well, and to, Harold to, Melton. Chief and Harold Justice Melton, the Harold Chief Melton. Justice, uh, an African-American Chief Justice of the Georgia Supreme Court. Uh, too I quick. assume uh, uh, David Namius, the presiding uh, judge, would be very much in favor of him because that would make <laughs> yeah. him the Chief Justice. Yeah. Uh, all right. So two quick notes before we get to a break. Uh, number one is uh, the fact that um, we are going to have Cody Hall as part of our panel tomorrow. He's Governor Kemp's press secretary. So we'll grill him 
as best we can to get whatever information we can uh, pound out of him about if he's certainly not going to reveal the choice. He may not know. But maybe we can get him to give us some hints as to whether we're going to get that announcement soon. And then the other quick note before our break, our assistant news director, Josephine Bennett, made an interesting observation this morning. And, Tamar, I I don't know. I, I assume that this is correct. Doug Collins, if Doug Collins is selected to replace Johnny Isaacson in January... Collins, as the ranking member of the Judiciary Committee, will get the chance to vote, presumably on articles of impeachment. Then, of course, he'll get to vote when it's taken up, if the Judiciary Committee passes it, which it certainly uh, is expected to. He'll get to vote on the floor for the measure. And if he's appointed senator, he becomes a member of the jury. There's mm-hmm. there's no rule that he can't do both roles, right? No, but he would be prohibited under Georgia law for doing that because a grand juror who in, votes to indict cannot serve on the pettit jury by constitution in the state of Georgia. However, I don't think that would be the case case up there in Washington. A I political think he'll, process. I think you'll get two votes. All right. Yeah. I'm not sure. <laughs> All right. Well, I'll tell you what, uh, Tamara, that's something that would be fun to uh, dig into a little bit more. But let's do this. Let's take a break. And then, yes, we'll talk about impeachment. This is Political Rewind. On the next Fresh Air, Reese Witherspoon. She executive produced and stars with Jennifer Aniston in the new Apple TV Plus series, The Morning Show. It's about a network TV morning show in which the male anchor is fired after an accusation of sexual misconduct. Witherspoon has been outspoken about sexual harassment in the entertainment industry. Join us. Fresh Air is this afternoon at 3 on GPB and online at gpbnews.org. Or ask your smart speaker to play GPB. Support for GPB comes from generous listeners like you. And Oglethorpe University Hammock School of Business, where curious, compassionate students acquire skills for their first job and their next job. The Hammock School of Business, working to create robot-proof leaders. Find out more at oglethorpe.edu. And Georgia DBHDD Office of Behavioral Health Prevention, reminding Georgians to ask their doctor about alternatives to opioid pain medication. Insurers can be consulted about covering non-opioid pain medication and therapies. We're back on uh, Political Rewind. Uh, okay, so we had our first impeachment uh, public hearing yesterday, and um, I want to get the panel to weigh in a little bit on uh, what you all heard. Uh, but before I do that, you know, it was remarkable that we had these two uh, uh, veteran professional diplomats on the witness stand. And after all of the talk over the months about the deep state and the prejudices of the deep state against President Trump, we finally got to hear from two people who have really devoted their lives to public service. And, and I want to play a, a starting uh, point here. We'll play a little sound. But um, I want to talk, I want to play just for a minute. Uh, Eric Swalwell, a Democrat on the committee, asked the following question and got the response that you'll hear. Mr. Kent, are you a never-Trumper? I am a career non-professional who serves whatever president is duly elected and carries out the foreign policies of that president in the United States, and I've done that for 27 years for three Republican presidents and two Democrat presidents. Ambassador Taylor, are you a never-Trumper? No, sir. So, uh, Tamar, uh, uh, Taylor and and, uh, Kent asked that question. Trump has been calling them never-Trumpers. For quite a while now, what tell us first of all in in general? What was it? Where, were you in the halls uh, yesterday? What was the mood like up there? Um, you know, everyone was was tuning in all day, but this was also a six hour long hearing, and it yeah. didn't feel, at least from my perspective, it didn't feel like it had the same kind of spellbinding. Um, like it wasn't the same spellbinding moment that it was when uh, Brett Kavanaugh and Christine Blasey Ford were testifying. That's that's my take anyway. You know, folks were, were tuning in and you, you watched it. You could see it on everyone's TV screens as you walk by people's offices and desks. But it didn't feel like it was the same because I think a lot of it has been playing out for so long. Um, behind closed doors, we got a lot of those tidbits. It didn't feel like it had quite the same impact. Buddy? I watched most of it. 
and uh, doing, did, doing, uh, doing, other, doing other things. <laughs> and uh, I was very impressed with the witnesses. I thought that they came across to me as unbiased. I think, they, I think we reward them for their public, public service. And I think the characterization that uh, Ranking Member Nunes made was, was unfortunate, and I don't think it helps him uh, to do that at all. But, again, as I was saying a while ago, uh, this is going to last for two or three weeks. Let's see what people say. Let's see what the evidence shows, and then we'll see where the, where the vote goes. I was uh, in Congress when we had several impeachments. Uh, of course, none of us ever bothered <laughs> to go to the committee or paying attention to it till it got to the floor. Wait, not, wait, not so here. Wait, so you were the Lindsey Graham of earlier impeachment efforts. By no. that, I mean Lindsey Graham said, no, I'm not going to be paying attention. I'm not going to read the transcripts. No, I read and, the committee reports oh, right. in each instance, <laughs> and I voted on for, to impeach, uh, I think, either three or four federal judges, one of whom ended up in the Congress before. Who was that? This was, this was Alcee Hastings. Impeached oh, and convicted. Yeah, that's he was right. He was and convicted, convicted by the, by the Senate. Senate. Yes, exactly. Then elected to the Congress yes. and came up. Florida? And I, Florida? Is that, from Florida. And yeah. I went, went by to see him and, and said, hello, we're glad to have you here. Uh, Apparently a bribe was not considered a necessarily bad thing for someone going to Congress. Uh, I think both of these gentlemen came across yesterday as committed public servants. Uh, I think that we should respect uh, their years of service to our country. Uh, what I was most impressed with both of these folks is that they came across, for want of a better term, as Joe Fridays, just the facts. Yeah. They did a very good job laying out what they knew, and they were very explicit about what they didn't know. And so when folks tried to push them uh, to take opinions or to to say something that was outside of the scope of their actual knowledge, uh, they were very quick to stay within their lane. And I think that's very much to the credit of both of them and, quite frankly, uh, allowed both sides to walk away uh, with certain talking points uh, regarding what they knew uh, and the concerns that they raised about uh, the policy shifts that they perceived as happening uh, they've made points for the Democrats, and in terms of what uh, uh, what they who they never actually talked to when it comes to President Trump, for instance, they gave talking points to the Republicans. And to both of their credits as career diplomats, that's kind of what I want <laughs> someone like that to do: just give us right. the facts, and then let the Congress and the American people decide uh, what what's going on. And here. then let other witnesses fill in the gaps, if there right. are gaps to fill in or if they have the information. But again, uh, you build a case uh, not on what the first two witnesses say. It's uh, a cumulative amount of the evidence as it comes forward. And if, if it's there, then the vote and then the American people will really have a chance to make up their mind, their mind as well. But everybody seems to want to rush to judgment one way, one way or another. And uh, I think we just ought to let the process uh, undo and uh, see where it goes. Well, tomorrow I want to go back to uh, your comments at the beginning of this segment that you didn't feel the sense of excitement, focus, uh, intense kind of concentration on this the way you did with uh, Brett Kavanaugh and Kristen, Kristen uh, and, and Blasey Ford, Christine Blasey Ford. Uh, do, do you suspect then, uh, how, how do you think that translates to whether people, I haven't seen ratings yet, I don't know if anybody here has, but do we? What do we think about whether the uh, whether the public out there across the country was tuned into this tomorrow? I know in some ways it's speculation, but what do you guess about that? I'm not sure, but based on a lot of the officials who were in the room and, and folks you know we were talking to after, it didn't seem like it changed anybody's mind. Well, because right. keep in mind that both of these guys testified behind closed doors before, so we you know there there were some new things that. That came out. I can't remember if it was Taylor or Kent yesterday who, who disclosed a new phone call between um, between the ambassador to the EU and Sondland and, and the president in a cafe in Kiev. It was um, between uh, it was Gordon. It was uh, Bill Taylor's assist, uh, an aide to Bill Taylor, who said yes, he was in the room when Gordon Sondland was talking on a cell phone to the president and heard the president basically say, I want this investigation, period. And, he, and, and Taylor further testified that after the aide hung up the phone, uh, he, he, or after Sondland hung up the phone, the aide said to Sondland, what is he saying about Ukraine? 
And uh, Sondland said he's much more interested in the investigation. So just to, to uh, say that a little bit more specifically tomorrow. Yeah, yeah, it just felt like everybody's opinions that were already previous held, previously held were reinforced. Um, and, and that, you know, maybe these are just politicians being politicians um, and playing for their side. But, um, you know, I haven't seen so far, it, it doesn't feel like there's been any sort of seismic shift in the public. Yeah, okay. Um, let's play a little bit more, because I want to get your take, all of you, on, we know how the Democrats proceeded. They were there to build a case for impeachment. You may or may not agree with the fact, you may not agree that they have a case, but it was clear that their effort was going to be to methodically build a case that the president did commit acts that deserve his being impeached. The Republicans seem to have a different agenda. Let me start by uh, playing for you uh, a little portion of Devin Nunes's opening statement. What we will witness today is a televised theatrical performance staged by the Democrats. Ambassador Taylor and Mr. Kent, I'd like to welcome you here. I'd like to congratulate you for passing the Democrat Star Chamber auditions held for the last weeks in the basement of the Capitol. It seems you agreed, witting or unwittingly, to participate in a drama. But the main performance, the Russia hoax, has ended, and you've been cast in the low-rent Ukrainian sequel. So, so that was Devin Nunes in his opening remarks. And then a little bit later, remember that Jim Jordan was added to the Intelligence Committee as a temporary member and put there very specifically to be a pit bull on the attack to try to undermine the Democrats' argument. I'm going to play a little bit longer exchange in which Jordan uh, took some time to quiz uh, uh, Bill Taylor, and you'll hear the exchange as it unfolded. Ambassador, you weren't on the call, were you? The president, you didn't listen on President Trump's call and President Lindsey's call? I did not. You've never talked with Chief of Staff Mulvaney? I never did. You never met the president? That's correct. You had three meetings again with Zelensky and it didn't come up. And two of those they had never heard about as far as I know. And president there was Lins- no reason for and it President Zelensky never made an announcement. This, this is what I can't believe. And you're their star witness. You're their first witness. Mr. You're Jordan. the guy. You're the guy. Based on this, based on, I mean, I've seen, I've seen church prayer chains that are easier to understand than this. Ambassador Taylor recalls that Mr. Morrison told. Now, again, this is I hereby swear and affirm from Gordon Sondland. Ambassador Taylor recalls that Mr. Morrison told Ambassador Taylor that I told Mr. Morrison and I conveyed this message to Mr. Yarmouk on September 1st, 20. This all happens, by the way. This all happens, by the way, in Warsaw, where Vice President Pence meets with President Zelensky. And guess what? They didn't talk about any linkage either. Time the gentleman's expired. Ambassador Taylor, would you like to respond? Let me just say um, that I don't consider myself a star witness for anything. They do. You don't. No, uh, I don't. I, I'm just. I'm responding to. I'm responding please, to your question. Don't interrupt the witness. Um, as I, I, I think I was clear about. I'm not here to take one side or the other or to advocate any particular outcome. So let me just restate that. All right. So Edward, let's think about Georgia voters. Uh, uh, fine. Jim Jordan and Devin Nunes, no question, solidified their arguments with the Trump base here. But you can't win Georgia by just attracting the base. You've got to go after independent voters. You've got to have those suburban women who've been uh, uh, in, you know, gone both directions on voting in the past. I will tell you, I just wonder, especially Jordan and the approach he's had. By the way, it's cold in Washington. Can we get a fund <laughs> together to buy him a darn coat? For sake? Uh, Edward, is this the say way that. you win over voters? Well, with once that again, to, to sort of build on, on what Buddy's point is, you know, uh, and I spent most of my career in litigation on the defense side, is that you build your defense one, one building block after another. And the fact is that I thought actually Jordan did – a, a good, a better job than Nunes did because he stayed within a narrow lane. He didn't disparage uh, these uh, two individuals' characters, and he simply pointed out that that neither of these witnesses uh, had uh, firsthand knowledge of what uh, I, president. Okay, so, and so for that reason, that's fine. The question is, gets back to Buddy's point, what do we hear on Friday? What do we hear for the three days next week and, and beyond that? Um, 
and 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 that's a question that we don't know yet because the defense is still being formed. If Edward right. Lindsay were defending that case, though, he would not make an opening statement calculated to uh, alienate some of the jurors. I'm just well, that's my point is, is that is, that's why I thought Jordan did a better is, job is than the, Nunes is did. The to- tomorrow is the is the tone that Jordan takes that aggressive talk a mile a minute uh, patter going to be appealing to people out there who really are on the fence about uh, President Trump? I don't know, but I think, you know, kind of going back to what I said earlier, you know, everybody is kind of throwing everything they can at the wall to see what sticks. You know, Democrats are bringing up all every every credible witness they have to try and have that viral moment. And so are the Republicans. There. Okay. You have Nunes kind of taking one approach. You have Jim Jordan taking the other. And everyone's hoping to have that quote that makes it into the uh, evening news that right. makes it onto political rewind. All right. Yeah, you're right. All right. I'm running out of time, but I want to do, I want to play two sound bites that absolutely reinforce what Tamara is saying. Here is how Fox and Friends talked about the uh, impeachment hearing yesterday. This is from their show this morning. So Steve Scalise, congressman um, from Louisiana, Republican, House Minority Whip, he said it was a really bad day for Adam Schiff and for the Democrats. Listen. And so it was a real bad day for Adam Schiff and this whole charade, this witch hunt that they've been promoting for months now. When John Ratcliffe actually asked the two star witnesses, these were the first witnesses that the Democrats brought out to make their case. He said, can either of you name an impeachable offense? And dead silence. Jim Jordan showed these secondhand, thirdhand, fourthhand, uh, these career bureaucrats who I'm sure they've studied Ukraine policy for decades. But the bottom line is there's only one person that sets foreign policy for the United States of America, and that's our commander in chief, Donald Trump. And this is how Joe Scarborough and Morning Joe talked about it. Well, anybody that was expecting a repeat of the testimony of Robert Mueller uh, would have been surprised uh, mm-hmm. by what happened yesterday. We, we had some new revelations, some pretty shocking revelations, and also, though, mainly a lot of, uh, of, of steady testimony uh, that continues to blow holes in the Republicans and, and the White House's uh, defense. So we'll get to that in a little bit. It is. It is something, though, how Republicans are chasing their tails and coming up with laughable defenses that will once again be proven false in the coming days. All right, we're running out of time. Tomorrow, I offer you those two sound bites to enter into evidence uh, to prove your case that everybody's already locked down and maybe they're not listening to anything. Edward, did you want to get into that? Uh, what I will do is uh, to borrow from my liberal arts education and the tale of two cities, Charles Dickens. <laughs> it was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was a season of light. It was a season of darkness. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. Oh, my God. All right, and, and I want to point out very briefly to tomorrow, with all due respect, is that the press uh, thinks it's the obligation of the Congress and the committee to entertain them, and that's not quite correct. The, it's the, oh, point, the I, point is I, is that they're supposed to bring out the facts, and I think they're uh, off to a good start. Wait a minute. Tomorrow, I, I think Buddy Darden just took a shot at our profession that I wish— <laughs> I'm serious. I wish we had more time to argue. Anyhow, I think the point that you made is proven by those two conflicting morning show sound bites, don't you? Tomorrow, oh, yeah. I yeah. mean, we, we love our sound bites. <laughs> All right. And that's the last word uh, for this show. We love our sound bites, uh, which kind of proves Buddy's case, but let's not go too far with that right now. Tamar Hallerman. Looking forward to seeing you here in Atlanta very soon. Edward Lindsay, Buddy Darden, thank you so much for being with us on Political Rewind today. Uh, We're back uh, tomorrow for another show. As I said, one of our panelists, Cody Hall, the governor's press secretary. It's going to be interesting to hear what he has to say, especially about where we're headed with a selection to replace Johnny Isaacson. I'm Bill Nygut. See you again tomorrow at 2.00.